Our reading today is again from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8. This is verses 23 through 27. I invite you to hear the voice of God speaking to us through these words of Scripture. And when he, being Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this story in our passage this morning, as we continue to look throughout this season of Lent, a journey of recovery from episodes in Jesus' life from the Gospel of Matthew. This one takes place on the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Gennesaret. Um, I've had the great joy and privilege of being on a boat on that lake. It's a large lake. It's 14 miles long, so I understand why they call it a sea. And I've always had questions about this lake. I've wondered how, as we have stories of Jesus pushing out a little bit in a boat to talk to thousands of people on the shore. I mean, we have a hard time having a few hundred of us here here in the sanctuary. How could they hear? But the mountains, as they come down to the lake, form an almost perfect amphitheater. So by going out just a little bit on the water in a boat you could hear well. I've also always wondered, some of the stories where they encounter a storm, why would you get in a boat and start crossing this lake if you see a storm coming? I mean, don't we have sense enough not to do that? But I saw where the way the mountains come together, it makes a natural formation so that the wind can come sweeping down through that dry valley and create sudden weather. On the lake. This seems to be what has happened with the disciples. They are crossing from one side of the sea to the other, and they've gotten in the boat, and a storm comes up, and they're really genuinely afraid. During one of the droughts where the water was extremely low in Lake Gennesaret, they were able to do some archaeological digging in the bottom, and they found some boats. One of them dates back to this first century time when Jesus would have been in a boat on the lake and its own display um, on the shoreline in in a museum. But they found many boats at the bottom of the lake. So boats were overturned. The disciples are not unreasonable to be afraid. And they wake Jesus up. Help us. This storm is going to get us if you don't do something. And Jesus just speaks to it. Be still. And it's still. And they're amazed. They're amazed that Jesus can just speak to nature and have it move. We, however, with about 2,000 years of reflection, might be a little less surprised that he could just speak to the winds and have them obey. 
After all, the Gospel of John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was there when everything that was created was created. Why would the God who created these things not be able to speak to them and have them obey? Jesus had a very unique relationship with nature. A star announced his birth and drew visitors from another land. On Palm Sunday, which we will be coming up on soon, if you remember, the religious officials asked Jesus to ask the crowd not to say that. Ask them to stop heralding you as you come into the city. And Jesus' response was, if they were to keep quiet, the very rocks would cry out. At his crucifixion, the sun refused to shine and the earth literally went dark. But Jesus isn't the only human being with a relationship with nature. I guess I should say that differently. In our theology, Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. He is completely God and completely human. I probably should say he didn't just have a relationship with nature because he was divine. We too have a relationship with nature. In the book of Genesis, there are two creation stories, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 2. In the first one, God creates the whole world and then creates human beings as the crowning pinnacle of all creation. And humans are given responsibility for creation. In the second creation story, Man is created first and then the whole world created as a place for man to live and finally woman to be his equal and his helpmeet. We're told in those creation stories that the sun, the moon, and the stars are given to us for seasons and for time. We live in a complex ecosystem as human beings and we are the responsible party. In some of the translations of that Genesis story, it uses the word dominion. And sometimes we hear that as, it's my dominion, I can do whatever I want with it. But if we really look at the context, if we really understand the word, we're being entrusted with the care and the management of these resources. Like so many other stories in the Bible where there is a vineyard manager in Jesus' parables where shepherds are responsible for the sheep for which they care, human beings were given caretaking responsibilities for this beautiful, magnificently diverse world that God created for us. We often receive gifts in our life. And if a gift is precious to us, we tend to cherish it and take good care of it. If it is an expensive perfume given to some of us women, we might wear it judiciously on special occasions or when we're going to see the person who gave it to us. Gentlemen, if you're gifted with an expensive suit, you might keep it for special occasions or important meetings. And here's an example that even those of us who are not single 
might try to imagine. What if someone who cared about you and who loved you said, I'm going to give you a home. It's going to be beautiful and well-appointed. It will provide you everything that you need. It's where we, you and I, will spend time together and get to know one another well. It's the place where our relationship will take place. What would it say about that relationship if we trashed the house? If we took its contents for granted? You may think it's interesting for us to talk about nature in our journey of healing and recovery. But nature can be immensely impactful to our journey of healing. We know it is good for us to be in nature. And I believe nature connects us with God. How many of us have been comforted by the song of a bird or the presence of a butterfly? How many of us have been stunned by the beauty of a sunset on a beach, awed by the majesty of mountains? It's good for us to move and take a walk, but it is great for us mentally and physically if we can take that walk outside. As beautiful as our sanctuaries may be, as comfortable and blessed as we may be with our homes, there is something about nature that is different. Very often, if you survey Christians, you find out that their most formative religious experiences often happened at camp, in a Vesper service, at an outdoor camp meeting. There's something about connecting with nature. And I believe it's because we need to get outside of all the human-made stuff and reconnect with the God-made stuff. It reminds us of the creator and the architect of the world in which we live. And we are able to connect with God. Did you know that most of our pharmaceuticals, most of the things that help to heal our bodies, were found in nature? We learn how to duplicate them and synthesize them, but we find them as part of plants and things that grow in the world around us. And I believe that Scripture gives us a pretty good example of our need to tend and care for this beautiful blue and green globe that we have been given as a gift from God. We may use its resources, but we should not abuse them because we are connected. What affects one affects the others. We've come to understand that pollution in New York City may affect fisheries in Louisiana, that what happens in California has an effect in Washington State, and that the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest affects the other part of the globe itself. Let me give you an example. In the 1920s and 30s, wolves were hunted to extinction in Yellowstone National Park. Ranchers didn't like the wolves getting into their herds and taking out some animals. So instead of getting rid of the rogue wolves and trying to find ways to keep them away from the herds, we simply killed all of the wolves. 
Without the wolf, the elk had few predators, especially during the winter when their other major predator, the bear, was hibernating. With their predatory fears relieved, they quit moving around much. And they ate too much of the young willow, aspen, and cottonwood plants. Beavers depend on the willow to survive the winter, so their populations began to decrease. Without them to tend the river banks, the rivers eroded and then couldn't support the willow. Without the beavers damming up the waters, there were fewer pools for the fish to lay their eggs in and for babies to be nurtured. Reptiles and amphibians began to disappear in the waters of Yellowstone, and the water became less healthy to drink. Without healthy stands of trees, songbirds died off, and you didn't hear their music in Yellowstone. Around the mid-80s, around 1988, they began to reintroduce wolves to, to Yellowstone. They became the most common cause of death among elk, which benefited the ravens, the eagles, the magpies, the coyotes, as well as the grizzly and black bears. And all of these animals began to be seen more in the park. They discovered that willow will regrow 84% of what a beaver eats within two years, but it'll only regrow 6% of what an elk ate in five years. So willows were clearly meant to feed the beaver more than the elk. Though there are three times as many elk in Yellowstone Park today as there were then, they are healthier, they are more mobile, they simply divide into smaller herds to escape the wolves and have less impact on their area. Other predatory species like grizzly bear and mountain lion, there are more of them than there used to be, but there's still enough food for everyone. The stronger stands of willow and aspen and cottonwood have brought back the songbirds. And now, Yellowstone National Park has become the place to go if you want to observe wolves in the United States. And it has become a national treasure for bird watching. This increases their tourism, which increases the people who know and care about the ecosystem, which also helps to increase funding to protect it. Now, the wolf wasn't a magic bullet. It was just one piece of restoring that ecosystem, but it demonstrated the grand experiment that shows us that we are all connected to one another. And this is consistent with our end-time theology as Methodist Christians as well. There's a popular contemporary Christian song that one of the verses says, The earth will soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, and he who called me here below will be forever mine. I don't know very many Methodist clergy that don't cringe every time we sing that line. We believe, as does most of Christianity throughout time, that the earth fell when humans fell. Way back in Genesis, we took all of creation down with us. But that through Jesus, God is redeeming all of creation. 
And that when the time comes to an end, when God turns time off and all of this is over, that God will not wad up this ball that is the earth and throw it away. No, he will restore it to the way he created it to be. The lion and the lamb will once again lie down together. There will be enough for all and we will live at peace. The new Jerusalem in Revelation descends. It comes here. Which means that the way we use the earth's resources testifies to our belief in the coming fullness of the kingdom of God. We do so either with care and appreciation or we do so with selfish and reckless abandon. It becomes a statement of our faith. Now hear me carefully. This is not a political statement. This is not a liberal conservative issue. This is a stewardship and caretaking responsibility as creatures of God. I'm not saying that we cannot and should not use the resources God has given us. I'm a carnivore. I eat meat. I use electricity. I've been known to waste water when I get a shower. But I try very diligently not to trash the earth. I I opt too often for disposable stuff when I could use washable napkins and reusable things. But we just need to be mindful that we don't take for granted this beautiful Magnificent and amazing gift. It heals us. Let's take care of it so it can continue to be a gift from God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.